Welcome to this APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello, I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. Today, I'm very pleased to have as my guest, Dr. Kirby Mayer. He's on faculty with the Department of Physical Therapy in the College of Health Sciences, as well as with the Kentucky Research Alliance for Lung Disease at the University of Kentucky. Welcome, Dr. Mayer. Thanks, Dr. Jetty. I'm excited to be here and thankful to have a conversation with you today about our research. Well, today we're going to be talking about your article, which is entitled Mobility Levels with Physical Rehab Delivered During and After Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation, or ECMO. This is really an interesting study. I'll give a brief overview of the aims as I understand them, and then we'll talk about it, okay? Sounds great. So the aims of the study were to determine whether or not physical rehab with 315 patients who required ECMO was associated with a variety of clinical outcomes. And the investigators also assessed whether or not the patient mobility response over initial rehab early in the ICU course was associated with survival, length of stay, discharge disposition, and rehospitalization at 30 days. So my first question, Dr. Mayer, is you note that patient eligibility and prioritization for rehab is still a debated topic, and it's influenced by several factors, including the patient's disease, the hemodynamic stability, and staffing availability in the ICU. In your study, 69% of the patients received at least one physical rehab session while on ECMO. Uh, How did those who received rehab differ from those who did not during their ECMO? Yeah, it's, it's a great question to start with. And I think the first thing that we need to consider is, you know, there were 9%, about 30 patients that never received any rehab when they were in the hospital. And that's pre or post ECMO. They never got it. And those patients, there's one really important theme. All of those patients end up um, having a negative outcome and passed away in the hospital. So 9% of them never got rehab and passed away. So I think that points to two themes. The first theme is potentially we are doing a fairly decent job with prioritizing those patients that we expect to have a very negative outcome. Those patients had the highest SOFA scores, meaning they were the sickest, and they had the worst sedative status. So those patients never getting it, maybe we are able to kind of tease out who would not benefit But the second part of the question, if you got it, whether or not it was before or after ECMO, this is really difficult um, to look at our outcomes because there are a few caveats in the data. The first being those patients that got it after ECMO, they were those patients that were had a short ECMO duration. If you look at our data, um, it was something like only six days on ECMO versus 15 days on ECMO for those patients that actually got PT and OT during ECMO. And those that didn't get it during ECMO, they had a really high initial SOFA score, 
meaning that they were very sick very early on, but perhaps they responded to the medical treatment and were weaned from ECMO. So potentially it could be that that short duration didn't allow for enough time to get rehab involved. And then they started after the ECMO was weaned or perhaps maybe it suggests that we need to get involved very, very early and be a part of that initial setting. The thing here is pre post ECMO, when is it most appropriate to deliver? And it, that's a really difficult question that I think we'll get into a little as we go into this conversation. Well, I think this helps shed some light on, on one of the findings that really did strike me. And I, I realize there's a lot of selection bias going on when Absolutely. you're doing an observational study. And that's not a criticism. That's the reality of your design. You found that patients who received rehab while on ECMO were no more likely to survive, nor did they have different uh, 30-day hospital readmission than those who received rehab therapy after ECMO. It suggests it's really not clear whether or not getting, at least in your design, whether or not getting it during ECMO makes much of a difference, at least in terms of those outcomes. Yeah, and I think you um, appropriately classified it as selection bias or, or maybe representation bias because we, we don't always have the right variables when we're looking at this study design. You know, if we went at it from a different approach, maybe there were things that we could further tease out and have a better idea of what was going on. But the, the study design really makes our interpretations be a little more cautious. We have to, you know, use our due diligence to say that we can't draw causality from this. Um, we can only really look at those associations and perhaps some predictions. But I think that there are some underlying themes in these two groups. So the patients that got rehab on ECMO versus the patients that got it after ECMO, the first thing that we, we already mentioned was the time. And those are significantly different durations on ECMO. Those that got it had the longest ECMO durations, but they also had the lowest SOFA scores, meaning that they were not as critically ill as that second group. And they also, if you look at the RAS scores, which is a measure of sedation, they had the least amount of sedative status. So that yeah. perhaps they were a little more engaged, a little more awake and they could participate in rehab. So in, in our view, when we look at this data, it's really challenging to compare the two groups because medically or physiologically, they may be two different phenotypes. Yeah. And they may be different and not really it's the best to compare them. So when we speak about that, when we speak about prioritizing patients, it really behooves us to take a deeper dive into these patients. Were they healthy before and they were sick and it happened rapidly and maybe they're going to wean quickly from ECMO, then perhaps we could maybe wait a little while. Or did they have pre-existing comorbidities and they have this really chronic long onset of an illness and they're going to be on ECMO for a few days, maybe it's best we get in there as soon as possible. And those conversations are really difficult to have because as humans, we want to just help everyone. We want to do everything we can for everyone. And maybe we need to have a better understanding of the evidence to know which patients are going to benefit the earliest, highest frequency versus maybe this patient, it makes more sense to wait a little while. It, it's a real dilemma. And I understand and, and am sympathetic to clinicians and the dilemma that, that you face. 
from a research perspective, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on, on this comment, I see two ways around this problem. One is obviously do an RCT. <laughs> That's the most classical way, and it creates the most dilemma for clinicians, and, and I get that. Even though, from a strict ethical point of view, it's not problematic because we don't have really good evidence that it's really important yet. The other if you don't feel comfortable doing an RCT, the only way around it that I can see is if you did a multi-center, very large study, you could then have large enough subsamples to control statistically for some of those factors that you've mentioned. Absolutely. Does that make sense? It, it does. And, and, you know, we're a single site and we, we, we have 315, which we were really excited about because- That's right. Uh, we were like, well, we can do some prediction modeling, but we're still limited in our statistical power to actually start to use timing as a covariate or a confounder or a mediator. Um, there's so many things that we would want to look at in this population because they're so sick. And because, and as we talked a little bit about the paper, so many things influence rehab, the sedative status, the severity of illness, the number of lines and tubes, the pre-existing comorbidities. And so there's a lot of things going on that make it really hard to control for. What we have seen in the literature, you know, especially the observational studies, is that earlier is better and a more frequent is better. When we look at those big studies that have been published in PTJ and other rehab journals, start earlier, do it more frequent. Yeah. But in this ECMO population, you know, our study really challenges is that true always? That's right. And I think what we show is that it, it, it certainly is true for certain patients, but there may be phenotypes that we need to consider. Yeah. Well, and I think it shows a growing sophistication as we stop asking all or none questions and get into phenotypes and then into exactly what kind of rehab we're, we're providing these patients. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the all or none theme is an, another question I think you're going to proposed that towards the end was, you know, these approach to rehab that every patient is the same and we're going to give every single protocol. Um, we're just showing that's a little outdated in our thought process because there are different phenotypes and we believe that patients are going to respond differently. Yeah. So if yeah. you're going to, in research, enroll all comers and then give them one protocol, it's going to be really hard to show differences at the end of the day. Another thing that struck me when reading your study was the challenge of quantifying the, the type and the intensity and duration of the rehab that was provided. Right. Were you able in your study to, to move the needle on that at all? I, I certainly hope so. Um, this concept of rehabilitation and exercise is a drug and we should be providing rehabilitation as precise and precision medicine is really important. And so if we just continue to look at, did a patient get it or not? Yes or no. Uh, in, in my opinion, it's, it's not good enough. Um, we really don't know the dosing or the intensity. And so what we did try to do was look at timing, time to onset the frequency, and we looked at frequency in a few different ways, not just frequency during the hospital, but frequency in the ICU, frequency during ECMO. And then that last point, which you mentioned, which I think is really important, is 
you know, sort of a marker of intensity. Um, intensity, you know, more physiologic in nature. We didn't, you know, look at heart rate or blood pressure or things, but we use the surrogate marker of intensity being the highest level of activity achieved during rehab as sort of that representative of what's actually occurring during rehab. And what we were really, really interested in, in those first few sessions, what is your response like? What does your activity level change like? Does that mean that you'll have better outcomes if you are engaged and participating early versus if you have more of a flat trajectory? And so we, we did try to push the needle on that, really signifying that we need to do more than just say yes or no. We need to start looking at what's actually going on during rehab. How is it being prescribed and what is being achieved? And so absolutely, I hope so. Um, I hope this speaks to those other clinicians and researchers, you know, the RCTs. It's not good enough just to say, yes, you got the protocol versus no, you didn't get the protocol. You need to have fidelity in your intervention. You need to be able to say that your intervention was achieved how you designed it. So I think this does help push our profession forward. And is it fair to say we currently don't know what the the best dose and in intensity is for this patient population? Absolutely. Um, there's certainly a, a lot of work being done across the globe. Um, researchers here in the States that are, are really passionate about that question, but you know, researchers in Australia and New Zealand that are leading this work, um, we really don't know what the best dose or intensity or frequency. We keep saying that rehab is medicine and that we should be prescribing it as medicine. But before we can really get to our goals, we need to figure out what is the best frequency? What is the best timing? And I think our data would suggest that it's not always the same. It's a little dependent on different factors, both medical, functional status, comorbidities. And we need to be really, really cognizant of how we prescribe rehab. So hopefully going forward, we'll start to see a lot more work come out on that topic. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that really surprised me as someone who doesn't follow this literature is you point out in your article that the existing literature, which consists of multiple RCPs of physical rehab in the ICU, they have not demonstrated significant patient benefit. Can you talk a bit about that? Oh, I could probably talk for hours, um, <laughs> but one of my mentors led one of those trials that we say, it's not a negative trial, but it just didn't show a statistical benefit. And there's been quite a few over the last few years that randomized patients to rehab versus not in the ICU, and they look at their outcome and there just isn't a statistical benefit. And as we've already started to allude to, one of the primary issues is that a lot of these RCTs will just randomize to one specific protocol and they will take all comers. They're going to enroll everyone in the ICU and they're going to um, give one protocol. And as we know in the ICU, there's so much heterogeneity in the patient population. I mean, just a quick example, you can have a 25 year old with a bacterial infection, get really sick, but recover really quickly versus a middle-aged person who has comorbidities and their sickness is prolonged, but then they do start to recover. Do those two same patients get the same rehab? Well, if it was part of an RCT, they would have. 
But in reality, are they going to respond the same way? Physiologically and functionally, probably not. They probably have separate phenotypes that they need different rehab. So I think that's the first thing we need to think about. Um, The second big point is when we deliver rehab in the ICU, I think we really need to consider the medical factors that are going on. And, and, you know, we we talk in the paper about sedation. And one of the biggest and and most positive trials we have was uh, led by Dr. Bill Swikert and Dr. John Crest. And what they did was in 2009, they took PT and OT and combined it with sedation interruption. And they showed that this was great. This had positive outcomes. But to my knowledge, that study design hasn't really been replicated. You know, not sure why. It's something, topic that we talk about in the paper. Sedation is clearly having an impact on our decisions, but also our outcomes. So there's lots of work still to be done. Um, There's big trials actively running. There's the team trial in New Zealand and Australia that's enrolling hundreds and hundreds of patients across multiple sites. And then there's, you know, trials in the States like Nexus and, and some other trials that are, that are looking at these questions. But if you look at the literature, you're absolutely right. Those major RCTs for the most part don't show any benefit. And I think that points to a, the heterogeneity and then two the design that all comers. We've seen the same thing in other areas of rehab. So I'm not at all surprised. No. Nope. We just and, have know, more lots of other areas too. Yeah. You mentioned phenotype several times, so I want to come back to that a little bit. I know your sample was limited, although it's a large sample for That's one right. institution. Uh, can you shed any light on some of the key phenotypes that you think we should be focusing on based on what you learned? Yeah, I think, you know, phenotypes ha- is a word that's sometimes used and we're not quite really sure what it means sometimes there's a lot of different things that it could represent but um in this literature certainly what we know is that age and comorbid status have a big impact on outcomes so that's the first thing that i would point to is that there likely are differences based on those two factors on how patients will respond and recover so if you're older age with higher comorbidity you may have a prolonged ICU stay, but then a prolonged recovery. And your phenotype looks a little flatter and it takes a little bit longer to get back to that baseline versus the younger patient that maybe is not quite as sick who responds quickly. They look very sick to begin with, but then they have that rapid increase and their trajectory is just positive. And so those two phenotypes you know, our classic separated that we can say, but there are probably multiple other phenotypes within there that we just don't really know how they respond to rehab yet. Um, Because that work is still coming and still developing. In my other personal research, you know, I'm really, really fascinated by the recovery phenotype, um, how patients recover after they leave the hospital. We know in the PICS literature, the post-intensive care literature, that more than a third and sometimes even a half will never return to work, but some do. So why is that? And it's likely that they have a different physiologic, but they also have a different functional phenotype. Do you think this is relevant uh, in the, the area of long COVID? I do. I, I, I think that there are similar themes about how patients are recovering from long COVID and the multi-system impairments that those patients are suffering from. 
Um, a patient that is in the ICU may have similar types of impairments or symptoms. And so you could see that depending on the severity of illness, they may have more symptoms and a difficult recovery, arduous recovery, just like those patients with long COVID. There's a spectrum out there. Some people with very mild symptoms that takes them a while to recover, where some that are experiencing multi-domain and multi-systems impairments that you know we don't have an answer for yet. And I, I do think that there's quite a bit of overlap um, in, in the functionality of how they present, but likely very different in the physiologic what's going on underneath. You, you, in your article, you talk a bit about the importance of mobility milestones. Could you talk a bit about that with our audience? Yeah, this is um, something that's not really a new idea. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that we coined it or anything. It's something that's not seen a lot in the literature, but I think clinicians use it every day in their practice. You know, they, they may not speak that language, but they know I need to get my patient to this mobility milestone so that it marks this point in recovery or it marks this point in their status. And I think mobility milestones do just that. They are that common language that we can use to discuss and communicate with patient, family, and other providers so that everybody understands that this is what is occurring and this is what we hope to get to. It reduces the, you know, the, the difficulty of having tough conversations with other providers by having a common language. It's simple to understand. And, and everyone, when you say patient, Mr. Smith has not achieved standing, he's not made that milestone. You can approach the physician or the provider and say, you know, it's been 12 days and they haven't stood. And the physician may say, well, what are the barriers? And you can start to have that conversation back and forth. How do we get this patient to that milestone? Well, that's the first part. The second part, our data really suggests that those milestones are strongly associated with outcomes and maybe even predictive of outcomes. And so I really suggest that clinicians can use this to help them prognosticate to help them um, develop their plan of care. For example, if patient X has reached the milestone of sitting edge of bed, but they haven't reached the milestone of standing, maybe that helps us determine that they need physical and occupational therapy every day versus patient Y, who's already achieved milestone of walking 500 meters. Maybe they need it you know, every other, or every third day. So it should help us to start to develop plan of cares by really focusing on, have you achieved that milestone? And if not, what are the barriers for achieving it? So I, I really like this use in my clinical practice. You know, it's really easy to tell your patient, you know, our goal is this milestone. And they may say, well, that makes sense, but I also have this goal. And then you have two milestones. You have a patient-centric milestone and you have your, your clinician-driven milestone. So I really love the idea of this common language, which is something that um, some of the clinicians and researchers out of Johns Hopkins have been you know, pushing in, in some other areas. And I, I'm really advocating for that as well. Well, my, my last question, uh, you've talked a lot about the challenges in doing studies in this area. Um, in your opinion, what, what stands in the way of moving toward some multi-center randomized controlled trials. What, where, how do we get there? Because it seems to me that would be extremely helpful if we could get some more sophisticated trials 
Absolutely. Uh, I, I, again, we've talked a little today, but the first barrier is always the patient heterogeneity. You know, it's so hard in this patient group to compare one to the next because they have such varying medical histories and such varying um, severity of illness. And so the trial needs to at least address for that heterogeneity. Uh, the second thing that's really challenging is um, the complexity of the illness. And so th- they're very acutely ill. They have different sedative approaches. Their ECMO strategy may be different. They may have cannulas in their neck, in their groin, in their axilla, and that may impact rehab. Um, and then, you know, the ECMO delivery, how much flow and changes in the O2 and CO2, the oxygen and carbon dioxide in the blood may impact rehab. And so I really think that this type of work has to be done interdisciplinary. It has to have considerations for patient safety. And it needs to be something that is, you know, a culture is invested in. And the last thing is, as we all know, as clinicians and researchers, is funding. How do we get a funder to really invest in this topic and say that this is important? And I think we're getting there. You know, I, I think what I've hoped to show in this podcast is optimism for this area of research. I'm passionate about it, but I have so much optimism that things are improving and we are moving the needle. Um, For example, there is a randomized rehab trial in ECMO that is registered on clinicaltrials.gov. And so maybe in the next few years, we'll see some results. And so things are shifting and in the future, maybe we will be able to answer those questions about dosing, intensity, timing, and we, you're right, we absolutely need larger multi-center randomized controlled trials to answer that effectiveness question. Is it effective? Or maybe if it's not, when is it effective? No. And how can we deliver it so that we can best improve our patient outcomes? I think that's, as a physical therapist, what we all want to do. We're patient advocates. We want our patients to get better and we want to help along that recovery process. And so that's the next step in research for sure. Well, Dr. Mayer, thank you for taking the time to talk with me on this podcast and for publishing your research in PTJ. I really enjoyed the study, and I I encourage our listeners to take a look at it in the journal. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, 30 minutes went by so fast. I think we could stay on here and talk about this area for another two hours, but you know, it's something that was fun to do, and I hope that the study is received and is not just read, but stimulates you. What can we do better? That's, that's really what we're trying to do. What's better and what's next in our field? Well, thank you again. You can find more APTA podcasts like this one on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.